Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. Salam, Professor Brown. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, how are you? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I am good, alhamdulillah. I can't complain. Well, I can't complain, but I won't. <laughs> uh, no, I'm doing good. It's nice to uh, nice to hear. I mean, I actually have been your teacher twice. So I'm glad I, I saw your face. I recognized you. Uh, although, because I had this other student named Asher, too. So I was confused about which one you were. Anyway, but you're both very successful, which is good, mashallah. Thank you. It's awesome to have you on today because these are some very important questions that we have. And as I was, you know, kind of struggling to figure out who I would feel most comfortable with uh, answering questions like this, um, you know, several names came to my head and your name was there. And I really, really wanted you to answer because I, I like your take. I like the, your way of thinking. I like that you're... Uh, you know, a person of, of principle. Again, I'm very happy that you're here to answer these uh, important questions. And I, I think we should just kind of get started. And uh, well, before we get started, rather, I should, I don't want to assume that everybody knows you, but I'm sure a lot of my audience does know you. Do you mind just, you know, briefly introducing yourself, telling us about, you know, about your background, your research, your interests and in such things? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm a uh, professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. In Washington, D.C. School of Foreign Services, School of International Affairs. And um, it's big. Uh, so it has, you know, historians and anthropologists and economists and political scientists, and you name it. But I do I specifically study uh, kind of Islamic intellectual history, especially law and scripture. And especially I'm interested in, you know, issues of, I guess, that are pertinent to Muslim debates about reform and authenticity and kind of tracing these things uh, diachronically throughout history and seeing how how Muslims make arguments and accept or don't accept arguments around uh, issues of ch- change and continuity. And uh, I wrote uh, several books about Hadith and Jeff, I thought Hadith is a very important issue around, you know, kind of that, that comes up very frequently in a lot of these questions of uh, debates about Kind of reform and authenticity and things like that. And then I wrote uh, a book on um, kind of intellectual history of Sunni Islam. And then I wrote a book on slavery in Islam. And now I'm writing a book on uh, justice and Islamic law. And I am also going to be homeschooling my kids this next year. God willing, which means that I'm probably not going to actually write that book for another year. <laughs> That's life. Okay. Um, and if I remember, you are a graduate from the University of Chicago. You got your PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, but you also did study traditionally. And I, um, I, I think you're one of the few personalities who is, you know, I guess vouched for and respected in many circles, including you know people who are kind of studying Islam uh, at university. As well as people who are in the madrasa, I remember when I was studying hadith and my teacher, who's a specialist in hadith, uh, you know, he studied in South Africa, he assigned us one of your papers. And also, uh, you know, someone like Mufti Mutasir, he, um, uh, you know, he admires your work a lot. So that's awesome to know. 
Uh, actually, if you, if you don't mind, kind of just briefly telling us about some of your more traditional studies. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I got my, I got my PhD in Chicago. Um, and I mean, I, I don't, I mean, there's some, it's funny. I just was getting some people on, you know, were just engaged in activism, activist criticism of my credentials. So it's funny you asked, you meant you asked that. I've never, uh, you know, I've never made any claims to be like an alim or have a very, you know, super strong traditional Islamic background. Uh, I mean, there are certain areas, I, there are certain things I studied a good deal. I studied a lot of uh, classical Arabic grammar and poetry uh, in Cairo uh, with, um, you know, classically trained scholars. I studied uh, uh, enough, like, usul of fiqh and fiqh to you know, know my way around these subjects and, uh, you know, especially know when I need to ask for help. I studied a lot of hadith with, um, with several scholars in Egypt, but one of them is probably the one I spent the most time with. I spent a lot of time with him, like hours each week for eight months, uh, was a guy, a scholar named Osama Sayyid Mahmoud al-Azhari, who's only about a few years older than me, but it's one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. Um, but he's now, I think, the, the personal religious advisor of Assisi. So we have, I guess we could, I guess you could say we have political, I would have a political disagreement with him. But, uh, you know, I, I respect his knowledge, even if I disagree with his, uh, his political views. Does that answer the question? Uh, yeah, it does. And um, thank you for that. And I guess we could just start right now with the questions. And we'll start with the first one. What defines being a Muslim? Do we have to stick to a particular theological framework to be considered Muslim, especially given that concrete, you know, these concrete theological groupings they developed a bit later? Oh, I mean, yeah, see, being to be Muslim, you have to agree with me. No, <laughs> just joking. No, the, uh, the uh, no, I mean, this is, um, well, that's, uh, that's a huge, huge question. Uh, but I would say that I won't give you my answer. I mean, I think I'll give you the answer as I understand it as coming from the Islamic tradition, you know, writ large. I mean, obviously, there's some very exclusivist um, aspects of that tradition or strains like the Kharijites, uh, which, you know, these tend to not to not one, not be dominant and two, not to really even survive very long in their really kind of austere forms. But, uh, you know, I think both from the the, uh, the Shia and the, the Imami Shia and Sunni traditions, you know, to be a Sunni, to be a Muslim is, you know, to uh, you know, not kubilisan, well, tazdiq bil qalb, well, amal Right. So you you have to articulate your belief in the, the prophethood in God, the uh, unity and uh, exclusive existence of the, the God. Right. And then you have to accept the Muhammad Islam is the messenger, the last messenger of God, and you have to kind of uh, engage in actions towards to fulfill the requirements that are revealed by God and the Prophet. Um, and then, of course, that that you know you have to believe these things, right? You you, you say and you believe these things, or if you can't speak, you. Um, gesture or whatever. So I mean, uh, and so what I think you know in these traditions in the Islamic tradition overall, right? There, you know, action does not define your faith, right? So you don't, you know, if you commit sins or if you uh, don't 
you know, fast all Ramadan because you're lazy or whatever, you know, if you, you know, then you're just a bad Muslim, right? But you're still a Muslim. So it's, your, your faith isn't defined by your actions. Your faith is ultimately defined by your uh, belief. And, you know, this is a tasdiq bil qalb. And so what does that, a tasdiq be a, believing what or accepting what? Is, you know, ma ja'abihi Muhammad, This is, I think, the general definition if you look in kind of the, the mature Sunni tradition of expressed by someone by someone like Burhan Adin al died 1860. But, you know, so it's it's what you believe, what the Prophet, brought, and which has arrived, come to us by widespread transmission. And um, and so I think another crucial idea for knowing what it means to be Muslim is to understand this concept of in, in Arabic, it's al-ma'lum min al-deen what is known axiomatically as part of the religion. Uh, and this is something, you know, Muslim scholars have always been very realistic about what they what they can expect, what they can demand of Muslims or what they can expect of them in order to be Muslim. Um, and so, you know, I think of Islam as being that there's a core area of agreed upon doctrines and requirements that you have to believe and do. And then sort of a, another a layer outside of that, which is generally agreed upon by everybody, but there's some disagreement. And then a layer outside of that where there's more disagreement and a layer outside of that where there's even more disagreement. Um, but to, and you only would not be a Muslim if you reject that inner core of things that are axiomatically known as part of the religion. You know, that there's only one God, that there, you know, if you pray five times a day or you the original obligation is to pray five times a day. You fast Ramadan, you have to do ablutions or prayer, fornication is prohibited, stealing is prohibited, right? Um, uh, things like that. Um, and, you know, if you look at the lists of some, some scholars that have come up with these, of what these tenets are that you have to believe, uh, you know, you can be anywhere from, you know, a paragraph to a page, but it's relatively small and it's nothing compared to the massive breadth of, of issues and discussions that Muslim scholars have around, you know, uh, can you take out this kind of loan or not, or can you, you know, eat a frog or not, or you know, um, so uh, so they, they they always acknowledge that that you know that, that even if they felt strongly about whether you can eat a frog or not, uh, that they couldn't say that somebody was not a Muslim because they didn't um, because they had a different opinion. And you can see this also with, you know, with scholars like Al-Ghazali or Ibn Taymiyyah, when they talk about uh, the imami Shiism, well, they'll say, you know, this is um, this is not a rejection of any core tenet in Islamic theology. So imami Shiites are Muslims, uh, although Ibn Taymiyyah would say, you know, that the, that the that they are heretical. Uh, but that they are they're still Muslims. Certainly, the, uh, the the masses of them are still Muslims. Um, so I think that that that's like a, a you know. But neither of those scholars had any love for Shiites or any you know any real sense of a legitimacy of the Shiite tradition. But they acknowledged that whatever their disagreement with these people or their beliefs, that they were still Muslims. So I think that's a a, a good way to understand it. And so what, what would the requirements be for things being ma'lum and adin or known essentially as part of, axiomatically as part of the religion? This is, I've only seen this discussed a few places, rather late in Islamic history. I mean, one thing you see discussed early on is the idea of mujma alayhi, that things have to be agreed upon by consensus. 
and the consensus is very rare. This you'll see uh, Shafi articulates this in his um, in his Om. He articulates it in his Risala that uh, you know that the thing that Ijma is only on what he calls usul al ilm, not on the furua. It's only on like the basic, you know, really basic issues. Like there's five daily prayers, theft is prohibited. You know, um, fasting Ramadan is required. Like you're not going to see consensus on very many issues. Uh, and uh, later on, scholars would would kind of d- distinguish between what's agreed upon by scholars, or what's agreed upon by the, and, uh, with the masses. So if you, you know, for example, it's agreed upon by scholars that not marry a woman and that woman's maternal aunt, al-khala, right? Uh, that every, everybody agrees on that. But I mean, if you went to ask some guy in the street in Cairo or something, do you know that? He'd be like, you know, I probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. I mean, how often does that come up as an issue? Like, oh, I really want to marry this woman, but I'm already married to her maternal aunt. I don't know what I should do. So, uh, but th- that, that's like, you're not going to be declared a kafir if you don't believe that because nobody knows that, right? Whereas things that there are things that are agreed upon by, and known by everybody, those are what's the things that are known axiomatically as part of the religion. So, you know, that, um, you know, murder is haram or something, or that Muslims have to believe in the prophecy of Muhammad. So at least that's on. So this would be like the, the things that everybody knows. So you see, what would be the I think one scholar, Maliki scholar, Fathal uh, Banani, I think, in the 1800s and 1700s, he has a good articulation of this. Uh, he says, Badura is requires that it's based on some scriptural text, nas that's qat'i thabut wa qat'i dalala. So it's uh, certain in its attribution and certain in its indication. I don't actually necessarily agree with that, but that's what he says. Uh, the second thing, it has to be agreed upon, and third, it has to be right? it has to have become wide known amongst the, both the elite and the, the general masses. So that's, I think, a pretty good understanding of what those things are that you Muslims have to believe in order to be Muslim. I don't know if that's a that's sort of a really long and kind of disorganized answer to your question, but I did my best. Well, I mean, actually, I should maybe take this back and say something like, let's say, for example, you do not believe in literal, like angels being literal things or something like this. Uh, it, would that necessarily put you outside the fold of, of Islam or maybe say something like miracles aren't like miracles, miracles, but just like something different? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, again, I, I, I hesitate to kind of give a fatwa on this. I mean, I'm not trying to give a fatwa. I, I think these are answers that, these are questions that have been answered sufficiently in the Islamic tradition that I can report those answers without, you know, arrogating to myself the right to uh, to decide the answers myself. Uh, but I would say that, you know, there, there's a, you know, you, I'm sure you you know this book, but and Sherman Jackson uh, translated Faisal al-Tafriq of Muhammad al-Ghazali, the criterion of uh, difference, I think it's how it's translated. But I mean, he's, you know, uh, Muslim scholars, you know, they they can be very sort of demanding and strict. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned the issue of Shiite. So there's, I gave you the opinion of people like, you know, Al-Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah, Sa'ad and others who are, uh, let's just say, sort of latitudinarian or, or tolerant in their view. I think that's really representative of the Islamic tradition. We don't 
do takfir, people who pray to Mecca. Um, but you do have equally legitimate, equally uh, well-argued uh, strain that is much more, that's much stricter and narrower in its understanding of what it means to be Muslim. So if you were to look at the, especially let's say South Asian tradition of, you know, not just Deoban, but Deoban and Barelvis, and uh, you'd have, going back to people like uh, Maulana Shab, that Aziz Adelawi died 1825, that, you know, that not only are Ithnashri Shiites kufar, but if you don't say they're kufar, then you're a kafir, right? So that's that's a little bit strict. That's a lot stricter, right? So that that's also... Um, uh, kind of a, a legitimate Islamic position. I don't agree with it, but it's, you know, you can't argue that these, these people don't know what they're talking about. So thank you for that, Professor. How do we analyze the truth of Islam? What methodology do we adopt to conclude that something like the Quran is the word, is the, is the word from God? Uh, or do we first accept that it's the word and should anything come against it, uh, you know, disregard those things and say, you know, we don't just understand everything. So we kind of have to stick to what we know. With this being the you know the word of God. Mm. Wow, that's a tough question. Um, well, I, I think that you know you you have to. I mean, it kind of depend. It kind of depends on what you know what your requirements are for this. You know, what does it mean for let's just say for something to be the word of God? I mean, you could. Uh, you know, you could believe that the Bible is the word of God, but that what the word of God means is that God has preserved the true teachings of Christ through century, through two millennia of translation and textual corruption. And because of what really matters is the sort of mess, the final message that comes out of the, you know, the experience with this scripture. Um, so that, that, I mean, I, that's like a, that's a much more kind of abstract or, you know, not non-literal understanding of what it would mean to be the word of God, right? But so it kind of depends how you how you define the, the premises or assumptions of your question. So I think you know when it comes to the Quran, those premises and assumptions are shaped by the claims that Muslims have made historically, where you know the the Quran is kalam Allah, it's God's speech, uh, you know, that was preserved by. Uh, by God, right, um, for the Muslim community and through the Muslim community. So through that, and it's not like, you know, it's not like if I try and if I grab a Mus'haf and I try and tear it up, you know, suddenly my hand will get zapped by electricity and I won't be able to do it. At least not that I know of. I've never tried. But uh, I mean, so I mean, it's not, you know, it's the the actions of Muslims are the, 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 the device through which God preserves the Quran. Um, and so Muslims memorization, Muslim study of the text and preservation of the text and tra- transmission of the text. Uh, so that's how it's been preserved. Um, if, and I, as far as I know, and I've studied this extensively, right? I mean, the Quran has been uh, preserved intact. And, you know, uh, there's, of course, disagreements, differences in the riwayat of the Quran, the different readings. Uh, mostly these are vowel, just in voweling. Uh, sometimes, especially when you get to things like the the, the Mus'haf of Ibn, Ibn Mas'ud, you know, there's some differences in wording, um, but meaning the same thing. You know, instead of Fasr wa la dhikrillah, Famdu wa la dhikrillah, 
Um, but uh, or sometimes these these uh, differences very rarely, but sometimes they are uh, in the skeletal text or in the dot the, the dotting of the of the, of the, the skeletal text, continental text, uh, like um, you know in Surat al-Hujurat, it's you know if a sin, sin, if a sinful person, iniquitous person comes to you with some news, then seek clarification. In the, I think it's Al Kisai, I think two of the seven Orthodox narrations, Ruwayat, it's Fatathabatu. Fatabayanu and Fatathabatu and Fatabayanu are clearly the same consonantal script, but just distinguished by dotting to, 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 uh, for different letters, right? Um, but they don't sound the same. Uh, that's, if you were to be kind of a you know, just completely outsider's perspective, you would say, oh, well, you know, somebody was reading a, a text that didn't have dots and they, one, that one put certain dots on it, another person put other dots on it. Uh, in this case, I mean, a, but this is part of the Islamic tradition. Like nobody came, it's not like some Orientalist came and, you know, with a shovel and dug sands of Egypt and found some scroll that has Tethebetu instead of Tebeyanu and was like, well, I found, look at this. Look at this, what I've discovered. Yeah, Muslims preserved all this stuff. They studied all this stuff. They collected all this stuff. They organized all this stuff. And I've written about this before, you know, that I I, I always sort of chuckle when people, Western scholars studying the Quran, you know, act like they've, you know, they're shedding some new light on something by going and reading a book that a Muslim wrote in like the 10 hundreds of the common era or the 900s of the common era, or they're Muslim preserved in a book of fiqh or in a book of hadith. And then acting like, you know, they're shedding light on to, for Muslims on the nature of the Islamic tradition. I find that comical. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something that Muslims should be proud of, not Muslims should be surprised by. And uh, but, uh, so clearly, you know, to say that, you know, if you say the Quran is a word of God, that it, it has to have been preserved word for word, like, you know, like, I'm, you know, I'm looking at a birthday card I just got given, right? So it says, thank you. <laughs> That's a lame one. How about this one? <laughs> super dad. This is good. So super dad. I'm looking at the front of it. So that in English, super dad, if this text is going to be preserved word for word, it's going to always be super dad, right? But if you have a language that doesn't write short vowels, then what you have is S-P-R-D-D. And the, I think the nature of Arabic is it's just a different understanding of language and the relationship between writing and spoken language or the vocalization of a script. Because it could be, somebody might say, you know, um, let's say, uh, you know, supper dad or something like, you know, dad who makes dinner. Oh, supper dad is a dad who makes dinner. I'll just imagine that, right? So uh, that that would also be a word-for-word preservation of this text, because that's just how language itself is more of an, a, like a fuzzy and amorphous um, experience. Uh, so I think, and of course, the irony here is that Muslims and Arabs have always prided themselves in the exactitude of Arabic. And of course, you know, if you go and read philosophical or philosophical or text or theological text or scientific texts, you, you know, you're stunned by the 
the, the richness and exactitude of Arabic grammar or Arabic lex, lexical wealth. And someone like Biruni died, died 1048. He says, you know, he's like, Persian is not a language you can do science in. It's simply not exact enough. And the Arabic script uh, is exact uh, or is much better for writing about science. But he also will acknowledge that the Arabic script is deficient in that it it doesn't regularly mark short vowels. And if, if you don't, if you have an understanding of language where there's always that ambiguity in the way that you pronounce a word, that means that that's just a different conception of what word for word preservation is going to mean. So I think that, uh, but again, this isn't some modern surprise that we have to, where we have to reevaluate how we've understood the Quran. Uh, this is always how Muslims understood the Quran. Uh, and if, if Muslims today don't know that, that's just our problem. Um, I mean, that's our, our that's the fault of, of us not educating ourselves properly. So, I mean, so that's, I think, the answer part of your question about, you know, what does it mean to believe in the Quran or to know what the Quran is the word of God? You know, I, I, I assume part of your question is talking about the historical preservation. So, I, I, I mean, it seems kind of like that uh, one of the criteria in determining whether this is, you know, the word of God is not that it's been preserved, but because I'm sure there's many books that have been preserved, uh, which we don't necessarily say is the word of God, but that there's a claim that the book will be preserved and it actually is preserved. Am I understanding that? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. So I would say, yeah. So I would say that the claim that the Quran is preserved, you know, what is it? Right. So these are a couple of different verses that talk about this. That the that the claim of the preservation of the Quran, as understood through the tradition of those scholars who collected and transmitted the Quran, has has been borne out historically. Yeah, I believe that their claim has is, has been proven to be true. Um, now, then you get to the other issue of you know, well, look, millions of people have read the Quran and not be, become Muslim. You know. Whether they, you know, have no, no Arabic perfectly, and they don't become Muslim if they don't believe it's the word of God. So that you know, clearly, whatever the nature of the Quranic text is, and I think it's preserved, then it's clearly not sufficient to make somebody automatically believe in it as the word of God. So then, look, this is I, I'm very you know, you can make rational arguments for um, the nature of the Quranic text. You can make rational arguments for. Um, lessons it teaches or predictions it makes historically. But again, lots of people, lots of people read this and are not convinced. Uh, so, I mean, for me, I, I really kind of have to go gazalian on this and in my own experience as well as a Muslim, this is true, which is that, you know, you, you faith comes as a, as it's, 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 it's put into your heart as a light from God. It's a gift from God. And that's, it comes um, first and foremost and most certainly through experience, through an experience of contact with the divine. And that's for, for me, what always guides me and, and keeps me on the path. Understood. Thank you. And this next question, feel free to uh, disagree with portions of it if you think the whole thing doesn't make sense. But reason is, in some senses, um, subjective and relative to time and place. There are also plenty of things in Islam which we accept on faith. 
if this is okay for us, how can we blame a Christian or, or, or someone for accepting things in their faith that they kind of do, uh, you know, if it's a bit more fideistic? After all, most methodologies are man-made. And for every argument for X, we'll have, a, you know, a counter-argument someone else will make for Y. Um, do we place ourselves in a bind when we accept absolute certainty based on faith? Yeah, um, well, you, I think you're you're asking two two linked questions, which are very, you know, these are very profound questions, right? So the first one is, um, you know, if if you make an argument, if you say that uh, reason can lead us to certain ultimate truth conclusions, right? Then how do you explain the fact that lots of human beings using the same reason, rational faculties that we have don't arrive at those truth claims or truth conclusions, right? Um, and the second question is, if you're going to say that actually reason can't, is not a tool that gives ultimate access to truth, capital T, right? That, that reason is sort of a it's a tool, like it's you know, like Al Ghazali would say, like Al, it's another, you know, that it's a, Al, it's a tool for investigation. Um, that it, there are certain things that it can do, but that if it's not guided properly or not based on the proper, the correct premises, that it won't lead to the correct conclusions. Um, uh, if it has to be deployed correctly in order to work, then what's your ultimate proof of truth? And if you say it's experience, like I did, then well, how do you argue against another person's experience? So, you know, whatever sort of whatever option you choose, you back yourself, or you you end up in a in a, in a sort of a dead end where you don't have a way to explain why your choices are more valid or truer than other people's choices. Um, and, you know, so I, I think, you know, first of all, you know, about the relativity of reason. Uh, yes, um, most of the time when we talk about the use of reason, it's highly, it's, it's shaped by highly contingent factors, culture, notions of what's possible and impro improbable, impossible and improbable based on how we think of science. You know, like, you know, my kid, my seven-year-old's asking me, he's like, are ghosts real? And this is the worst part of being. You know, I was like, you know, what I want to say is no, they're not real because I don't want to, I don't want to be scared, right? But then I'm thinking, actually, I don't know if ghosts are real or not. Like, I, you know, if you think about it, there's all sorts of of reliable traditions in the Islam in Islamic history of scholars encountering the spirits of people or seeing people in dreams, seeing the Prophet in dreams. I thought some right, um, seeing. Uh, uh, that what's the what's the relationship of the soul to the body? Did the soul of a dead person linger around the grave? Does it have some kind of link to the grave? Uh, can you you know when you when you say salams to the prophet, is he present? In is that a is that the same as a go? You know what I mean? So suddenly you know what about jinn, right? So I was like, man, what do I, how do I answer this question? Um, so I said, you know, well, ghosts can't, we don't know the nature of what happens to people after they die, what happens to their spirits exactly. You know, I can give you, you know, that the 
souls of the prophets are in Eliyin, that the souls of the believers are in the seventh heaven, uh, or that they're suspended on trees uh, waiting for God to like re- re- reunite them with their bodies. That's a hadith. I think it's in um, Sahih. No, it's in, I think, the Hayat al-Awliya of Abu Naim that the souls of the martyrs are in the bellies of green birds suspended on the throne of God. Uh, that these are all different you know answers I could give from the the hadith tradition, but you know we don't know we don't know for sure what these answers are. So I just said um, you know ghosts can't hurt you. Whatever the case is, you just say you say and you ask God's protection from these things, and they can't hurt you. I don't know if this was a good answer or not for for my kid, <laughs> but the point is. Um, now, what do you? Uh, the, the reason is always uh, is is so often, maybe most often, because uh, as Stanley Fish said, you know, reason comes from somewhere. It doesn't have no background. Now, that, I mean, there are certain things that maybe Aristotle would call, you know, first principles of reason, or what Muslims would call the al-bedahiyat or al-awwaliyat. Things like you know, the sky is above us, the earth is below us. A cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same way. So the principle of non-contradiction. These might, you know, that the whole is greater than a part. This is, these might be kind of universal first principles of reason, but they don't do a lot of work for you. And they're not really going to function to falsify or verify a a claim uh, once you get into any kind of sophisticated discussion about the nature of God or whether or not, you know, Jesus can be the son of God or something like that. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's very, it's difficult to, to look at reason as, as a tool that can, that can really um, act as a dispositive tool in discussion, especially in a world like ours today, where, you know, we're sort of, we're confronted by the incredible relativism of people's, people's rational worldviews. Like, so someone can be very reasonable, but be within a certain worldview where their reason doesn't really jive or uh, work or interact with another community's reason. Um, so then you're, you know, you're kind of left with this, with this proof of, of experience, you know, milk, right, or um, taste of, of truth. And uh, then you're, as I said, we have a problem, which is that Christian who has this experience of encounter with God and I have mine as a Muslim. So if I'm going to accept mine as valid and, and demonstrative of truth, how can I deny that to this other person or deny, I mean, what, whatever, what, what basis do I have for doing that? So I think, you know, in the end you, you have to, again, that's sort of, uh, you know, probably not a really helpful answer, but you really have to, at least I believe, you know, ultimately you have to just have to trust in God that, uh, that uh, the, the God revealed to all prophets, to every community in history until the coming of the final prophet, that he revealed the truth of the, the, the deen, deen al-fitrah, right? That, you know, belief in God, do good deeds, prepare for the day of judgment. And that, that humans can come to this belief both through their reason, looking at the world around them, and through revelation uh, and that the two come together to guide them on the straight path 
but uh, and that that God will deal justly with all his servants, all his slaves, you know. And so, like Ibn Abbas says, uh, he says, um, Rahimahu Allah, um, Right, so it's not uh, for anybody, any anybody to rule on God's behalf on the fate of His servants and to put them in heaven or hell. Right, so we can say that we believe that Islam is the the, the true religion uh, and that people should have to follow this in order to attain salvation, but ultimately we. As God says in the Quran, right? God does not wrong any of his servants. And we have to trust that that's the case. To what extent can we take pre-modern people as role models on how we live in the modern world? Despite how pious they, you know, they might have been, the attitudes towards sex, women, race, war, etc. is by no means today politically correct. Uh, one example uh, that this question is mentioning is of the companion Az-Zubair. Uh, who was one of the ten promised paradise, but apparently also um, a harsh and abusive husband. We are, after all, you know, considering all this, we're people who live in and are influenced by the present. To what extent do we make excuses for the past? I mean, when we're deciding, you know, what to follow, what is moral, uh, you know, we're speaking really from our own experiences in the modern world. So to what extent is it justified to view and define our relationship with Islam and the divine in accordance with, you know, our own environment, or maybe through looking at the past and contextualizing it. I mean, I think you know we have to have a lot more humility, I and mean, people are so arrogant today. I mean, the, the arrogance of the modern is really astounding. You know, we we act like the latest social belief has to be true when it, you know, ten years ago we held another one which we said has to be true. And 20 years before that, it was another one that has to be true. I mean, this is where the progressive, I don't really understand like progressive commitments, you know, because you're constantly being asked to commit to, as the absolute truth to some new tenet. But every single time you do that, you just end up being told you have to change that 10 years later. I mean, how, how can you, I don't understand how anyone can really feel confident about anything they believe. they're told. Um, you know, it's like watching, it's like reading scientific journals about whether, you know, oat bran causes cancer or not, you know, you're like, you know, and, and I mean, you just look at the results of scientific studies and surveys and there's, they're just, uh, you know, constantly being overturned. I don't, I mean, that's fine for science, you know, this is dealing with material issues of not with belief or with statements of right and wrong, but then that same like there's this moving frontier of what's right and wrong, and in every single thing that comes before it is backwards and 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 misguided and worthy of dismissal. I just don't see how anyone can have any confidence in what they're told is the current state of affairs. Uh, so yeah, the arrogance of the modern is a big problem, and I, you know, I think it's a lot healthier for people to think about morality less as a reflection of some moral truth and more to think about morality is generally customary, right? As, as basically orphanada and that, that orphanada are very important, right? So, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I don't tip the waiter, 
then that's bad. Like I did something bad and that waiter can be upset at me. And, you know, I can be, you know, I've done a wrong thing, you know, and I'm a, I'm a bad person. But if you're a, you know, if you didn't know you're, if you come from France or something like that and you didn't leave a tip, well, you just didn't know. Right. So there's no, and in another country, it could be completely different. So just because you say that morality is mostly about custom, doesn't mean that it's not important. It's very important. It just means that it's not grounded in some kind of universal. Um, whereas if you, I mean, think about, I mean, I wrote about this in my book on slavery, but I mean, this is, you can see this very clearly in debates today about, about these statues of taking down statues of this person or naming buildings after that person, or just how do you deal with the fact that every single religious and philosophical tradition that I know of prior to the 1700s at the earliest had absolutely no problem with slavery morally. Um, so you're going to just gonna throw all these traditions out because they were all, if you believe that slavery is an evil throughout space and time and that, you know, to not believe that makes you essentially a morally tainted person. How do you explain like, what are you going to do? Just throw out all of human history for 1700. Okay. That's fine. If you want to do that, but that strikes me as highly is very dangerous because someone could come and I write about this in my book, right? There's the people who argue about strict animal, animal rights advocates. They argue for the rights of animals. They talk about it as abolition. They say that humans are enslaving and eating non homo sapiens without any basis. So what is the bait? Why is it that homo sapiens can't be enslaved, but cows can what, what, why, who said the homo sapiens are different from anybody else? So they'll in 50 years, someone might look back at yet at, some super woke person today and just be like, how could this person have been eating an animal? Like what kind of monster were they? So, you know, that, that we have to be very careful about making claims about moral universals. And I think saying we have to acknowledge that things like economics, technology, social change, customs, these are really where we get most of our moral convictions. Again, that doesn't mean those moral convictions are baseless or they're not important. They're very important, but they're not universals. So I think that, uh, you know, a similar thing with, you know, pre-modern individ- pre-modern figures who we don't agree with on, you know, on certain aspects of their conduct or their belief. You know, I just don't, what I say is, oh, well, we just have different, we have different or different customs than those people and i think oftentimes our customs are more refined uh because we're richer and we have you know i can i never have to i never have to really feel pain i never really i don't have to deal with nature i don't have to go outside i don't have to um face uh, lots of challenges that people even 100 or even 50 years ago faced and so yeah i have the luxury of having much more more refined ethics but that doesn't mean they're better ethics. I just think it makes them much more refined. You know, what advice do you have for people who are kind of reading these types of things uh, and living in the modern world? Like, for example, the Prophet, you know, he married um, Aisha and, you know, she was six. The marriage was consummated when they were nine. And that's fine. I mean, that's 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 OK, according to the time. So I, I think maybe six or nine is a little bit younger, according even to the time. From what I recall, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but still, it's like it's generally okay with the time. Sasami people had an issue with. Similarly, with with slavery, the companions they had slaves. Maybe I think maybe you I think you made the argument that 
slavery could not have been abolished because you know there was an economic need for no, slavery. I didn't, I, I, I didn't make that argument. Um, other people have made that argument, but I mean, I, okay. I would say I would say that slavery, the idea of abolishing slavery, didn't exist until the 1700s. I mean, really until the 1700s, maybe the late 1600s. But I mean, it just didn't. No one even. It didn't occur to anybody. Understood. So maybe, perhaps I, I misheard. I thought that I think in response to a question someone had asked, uh, you had said that you know there was kind of an economic necessity. So I, why the problem? No, it's not. So it's not. A, it's not about economic. I mean, it is sort of an economic necessity in the sense that that's how. It's one of the ways that people accomplished, you know, met labor needs. But it's not like somebody said, hey, you know, I want to I think we should abolish slavery. And someone else is like, no, man, you know, we, we need that economically. Uh, it just wasn't conceptualized. Understood. But the, the idea of uh, then the prophet came as, you know, kind of its moral exemplar. And so the, the idea prophet, of abolish- believe the prophet and the Quran were obsessed with encouraging emancipation of, you know, emancipating slaves, freeing slaves. Yes, slavery was harmful. Muslims always acknowledge slavery is harmful. Slave, slavery causes harm. They always acknowledge this. It makes you, it's, you're not able to choose what you want to do with your time, with your actions. You're not a, a complete legal person, et cetera, et cetera. But, Understood, but, but they didn't, the, the emancipation is different from getting just eliminating the actual concept or institution. But that uh, the idea to eliminate the institution didn't occur to uh, uh, the Prophet, who was kind of like this, the moral leader of, of for all times. So someone who's kind of like, I guess, struggling with something like that, uh, or the fact that, you know, like female slavery is maintained. Whereas, uh, I don't know if female slavery kind of used for labor, but you have women who are captured in war. And I mean, of course, just the idea that some a woman who's captured in, in war is going to be okay with having sex with the guy who perhaps killed her father, killed her husband, and then took her. So, I mean, there's an element perhaps, and of course this might be a jump, but that there is some type of force or coercion being applied there. That also as a system, I don't know if that was removed or modified at all. And so it's, I guess, the question kind of, how, how does a modern Muslim deal with these things? Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, I think, but, uh, yeah, I think, um, I, oh. yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I think that you, you, you have to, uh, just in general, right? You know, one of the things I love about history is it's so comforting. You know, when you, you, you walk around or you sit in your room thinking about these different great questions of our era, of our time. And, you know, you, sometimes it's, it's very, it's, it's so you feel so alone in that you're, in the, in the, you you feel that you have some certainty and it clashes with something that's being told to you is certain outside you right or you have a certainty and you and you have a commitment to a faith but there's something that seems to be part of that faith that clashes with something else you feel is certain right and these are very isolating and and scary experiences you know um but when you realize that the world is so much bigger than you know, you know that our experience as a species is, is so much richer than just what we've experienced as individuals, or even what we have experienced as a 
as a community in our time or in our place. The And these were all human beings like us. They were all, you know, walked around on two feet and ate and slept and had good ideas and bad ideas. And some of them were smarter than us and some of them were dumber than us. And some of them were better people than us and some of them were worse people than us. You know, when you, I think this is one of the, the, the challenges that, that maybe kind of more morally moral absolutists have today, right? Which is that they don't really have a way of understanding, making sense of how someone in the past could not have felt the way they do, right? And I think that it's so liberating to know that people in the past felt differently than we do, because you realize that. Um, That there's actually lots of ways to be to be right and to be true and to to be true to be uh, loyal to truth, and it's not just the way that people say it has to be today. That's for me very liberating. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And so this final question, you know, we live in an internet connected world and things are increasingly complex. Uh, me buying coffee isn't just me buying coffee. It's potentially me contributing to a system that you know potentially might be harming other people. How much do we think about these things? Like, how much do we, you know, is it important for us to think about these things? And, and is it to the point of insanity where we're literally questioning every single thing that we're doing? Uh, what's really our duty as individuals, you know, kind of uh, existing in the moral, in the, in, the, in, the, in the modern world, interacting with it, uh, but at the same time trying our very best to be moral human beings? Yeah, uh, wow. You know, that's, that's deep. I mean, that's... Um... Well, I mean, one option is kind of go live in the woods or something like that. I guess you could do that, but not everyone can go live in the woods because <laughs> the woods wouldn't be the woods anymore, right? So the problem is with any any answer you give, um, once you kind of you scale it up, it, it a lot of those answers don't really work. I feel, you know, kind of traditionalist. Traditionalist Islam with a you know capital of T, not not late Sunni traditionalism, but kind of traditional Islam in the perennialist Sayyid or Saint Nasserist sense. Um, one of my criticisms of it is that it it's a, it's an elite it's an elite ideology. It's an you know it doesn't um, you can have like all your furniture made of wood that's been handmade and all of this stuff and not but I mean you, that that doesn't work for how can the entire society do that? Uh, you'd have to opt as a society to go into the pre-modern. I guess one answer would be we could all literally humanity could just say like, we are going to go into pre-industrial existence. That's one answer. How about that? But the second you go into pre-industrial existence, I'm going to guarantee you something's going to happen. Humans are going to, you're going to have much more stratified society, formally stratified society and if you're not going to have machines to move stuff around, you're going to get animals and you're going to get other people to do them. And so things like slavery will reappear. Land and its control will be the most important ways of uh, collecting wealth and power. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's no, there's no way to win, I think. Um, you know, maybe identifying certain practices that are particularly damaging, right? Uh, things like air travel. Uh, but I love traveling, but I mean, it's clearly disastrous for the environment. Um, things like, 
eating meat, so humans should really stop eating almost all meat. I mean, we could just eat a very small amount of meat. We don't need to eat meat. It's disastrous for the environment. Um, we can do, you know, meetings over Zoom instead of, uh, you know, I hope I, I, I I hope I never, it's not the case that I'm never invited to give a lecture in another fascinating country again, but in theory, I could give um, that lecture over Zoom and be the same for everybody. So I think that there are you know, certain things we can do to try and improve the cost to the environment. Uh, but I don't know, I, I tend to be, you know, I know it's very popular to to kind of to dismiss capitalism with revulsion and to, but I, you know, I'm, I'm more, uh, just, I'm less woke than like my wife and stuff like that. You know, they're I'm less lefty, I suppose. Uh, that I, I, you know, I'm not. I I think free trade is a good thing, and I think um, I think that the human beings have to be to a certain extent free to make choices about commerce and their labor and their time, and that other people, you know, some of us might look at some of those choices and not approve of them. Um, but that's just part of life and part of respecting autonomy. And also that certain people that are going to be to be wealthier than others and have power over others. And that that's just a, that's a nature as a fact, a feature of, of human society. And so as long as those relationships don't become excessively exploitative or uh, that, you know, people are not allowed to to, to fall into unacceptable poverty that you know you don't try and um, kind of artificially remove these differences. So I mean I guess those are maybe two questions. I, again I'm not I'm not qualified to 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 offer solutions to these questions. These are just some of the thoughts I've had, and I, I could be I could well be wrong. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, you've given us uh, an hour of your time, and it was an incredibly insightful and eye-opening conversation. Uh, before we conclude, however, I'd like to ask if you had you had mentioned some of the projects that you had in the works uh, earlier, but I was wondering if some other uh, some classes that you're teaching or any of the work that you have currently uh, that you would like to tell the audience about. Um, well, yeah, I uh, uh, what classes am I doing? Okay, I have to teach some summer school classes coming up, um, including the triple IT class. Uh, in Bosnia, tra- tragically, I won't be in Bosnia. I'll be on my computer here, but I miss Bosnia. But I guess it's better for the environment. Um, I, so I'm one thing I guess I spend a lot of time doing is translating Sahih Bukhari. That's something I do every day. Um, I learn a lot, and I and I, it's not just the translation, but also where there's a, a commentary. I'm doing a commentary along with it, but it's it's not a commentary in the kind of traditional Muslim sense of maybe comprehensive uh, fleshing out of the contents of the hadith, but more just to help help clear up confusion. If there's something about the hadith that doesn't make sense, that's confusing, uh, explaining how different hadiths can seem to have different meanings, how Muslim scholars have reconciled that uh, in the law and in theology. Uh, so that's one project I'm working on. And then uh, the other one is, uh, you know, just this, I guess this book on Islamic law and justice and Mubalim courts. I had to finish that. It's mostly written, actually, but I have to finish the project up. And then, um, I mean, I write things for Yaqeen Institute. I just wrote something on gender, on uh, like why the Quran and the Sunnah seem to always talk to men. 
uh, and not women. So there's a that should come out pretty soon. And um, yeah, I don't know. I guess this next year is going to be a challenging one. I mean, this certainly since the COVID-19, right, you know, my schedule, everybody's schedule has got, you know, we're challenged and you know, we haven't been able to accomplish the things we, we hoped we would. Uh, and next year will be you know, a time uh, will require more organization and probably less time wasted doing things like watching, you know, watching movies I've already seen or binge watching some TV show. So I'll have to be more disciplined with my time. Uh, so with that, I'd like to conclude the episode. Thank you again, Professor, for, for being on the call with me. My pleasure. Masalama. Mm-hmm.